Thank you so much for being here. And um, I, I am, am excited about tonight. I'm excited about uh, this, this journey uh, with you. I, when I was at OBU, um, I, I loved my time at Oklahoma Baptist University. I loved it. Um, you know, I went as a uh, young man wanting to, uh, called by the Lord to uh, prepare for ministry. And I have this professor named Dr. Bob Evans, and uh, not the guy that all the restaurants are named after up on in Missouri. But uh, Bob Evans was, uh, uh, Dr. Evans was just a, an incredible mentor in my life. And he, he would always get us together, and when we'd start a, a difficult class on theology, he would go, all right, boys. It's time for some mental, he had a real hick accent if you knew him, but uh, he would talk, talk about mental sweat. It's time to sweat a little bit because we're going to sweat. And, and you know, as I have embraced the, the wonderful blessing of, of being a pastor in a, in a local church, I've discovered that the best thing we can do as a, as a pastor and with a congregation is to sweat a little bit. And, and, and I want you to know over the next four weeks, this is not easy. This is sweat. Okay. Uh, we're going to, we, we, we wanted to be around tables uh, because there's going to be some homework, right? How long has it been since you had homework? Anybody? Uh, Eric, Eric's here. Eric, you doing your homework? Good. I'm because college it's, it's big. He's in college. Yeah. He's doing his homework. Um, so yeah, he's just starting his homework. Um, but but you know we're gonna sweat a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna ask you to we're gonna push you a little bit. We're gonna uh, our our prayer our, our our goal is to is to is to learn how to to study the Bible. And when I look at the days that we're in, it's it's absolutely critical for us to know the Word of God. Um, you know, I'm seeing teacher after teacher. Um, well-known pastor after well-known pastor shift in their theology. I mean, Rob and I, we haven't talked about it yet because I got a message from a very well-known pastor, oh, well, a message about a very well-known pastor in our nation who is shifting on some areas. We have a, a one of the, when I was a youth pastor, uh, there was a, a, a guy that was a fellow youth pastor. I've never met him, but I, I used his books and has recently just renounced his faith, um, and has come out in public and on Instagram, and 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 you know we're seeing such a uh, it's just such an interesting time because there are there have always been um, conflicting messages in the world, but um, but as our society has become more and more global. And we have Twitter now, and we have this connectedness now. Um, you're finding, we're finding that a lot of teachers are getting their false messages out. The vehicle, the delivery system for false messages is, is uh, prevalent. Um, but also the vehicle for the truth is prevalent. And in a day where we are getting news and, and information that we can't tell what's Babylon B and what is actual news. And if, do you, I don't know if you know what Babylon B is. Okay? Uh, they're a, it's a satire. And, and, and I'll tell you, there's many times that 
we see something that we think, oh, that is true, and then, and then it may not be true. And so we have to, I, we are convicted that we must equip the saints to recognize truth. And, um, you know, one of the, the driving forces in youth ministry, you get to, my years of youth ministry has given me some really good practical examples. And, I, and I've told you this story before, and I'm just going to tell you it again because a rerun's always good, right? Um, a good rerun. Um, Mickey Maroney was a, a, a tremendous man in our ministry at Council Road. He, was a, he taught 10th grade boys at Council Road Baptist Church. And Mickey Maroney was uh, a very interesting guy. He, he guarded President Reagan. He, he was uh, in Oklahoma City because he was, um, worked for the counterfeit department. Mickey was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. He was there that day, and he was killed that day. And, and we were just really sad about that because he was a great man. And, and, and I'll never forget when Mickey came to the 10th grade boys' Sunday school class, and he had 10 $100 bills. And he looked at all these 10th grade boys. He said, all right, boys, one of these is real. And if you can find it, you can have it. Because Mickey was in charge of the counterfeit department. And he said, by the way, I'm taking the other nine with me uh, because I took these from my office. And you will get arrested if you try to spend it. So, but if you can find the real one, I'll give it to you. So, man, these boys were like, oh, I'm going to find the real $100 bill. They were looking at it. And, and he passed it around. And, and, and each one of them got to pick one. And not one of them picked the right one. And every time he'd, they'd go, this is the right one, he'd go, he, he got them all out, and he goes, okay, no, that's false because of that. Look at that difference. And, and then he goes, look at that one. And then he pointed out all the differences with those $100 bills. And they were like, how, how did you do that? And, and he said, well, I've spent so much time studying the real thing that when I saw something that was false, I immediately recognized it. And I thought that was a, that's a brilliant example. It, it, it's, a, it's a true example for us because we need to understand the real thing. We need to understand the Word of God. And one of the things that we believe in our church, that God's Word is authoritative, and it has been given to us as a blessing. And so, uh, and, 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 it, and it sharpens us. It corrects us. It, it, uh, it, it uh, gives us guidance and wisdom. And so, but we have to understand how to interpret it, understand it. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to get into the weeds of that, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Acts 17. And, and uh, this is something that I, um, when we went through Acts, it was such a great study. And uh, we, we preached through the entire book of Acts. And, and, um, and in Acts 17, uh, it, it's just a really great, moment in Paul's life and, and in the, um, the church. He had gone to Thessalonica. If you look at verse 1 in Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them, look at that, from the scriptures. He took the scriptures and he reasoned with them. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great many, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. 
and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, of the, out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city and authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And I love that. I mean, look at them. Look at this. I mean, think about, I mean, I don't, I don't anticipate us having the authorities coming and dragging us out here. And, but that happens in the world. That happens in our world. And that was what was happening here. And, and Jason was in trouble. But, but I love their analogy here. They're, they said, hey, man, these guys have turned the city upside down. Verse 7, and Jason received them, and they were all, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let, they let them go. In verse 10, love this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And what I, It's incredible. They face this opposition. They don't stop teaching because the word compels us, and they go to the synagogue in Berea. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of the high standing as well as men. And you know, when you look at your little notes tonight, Rob Rob and I always wrestle on, you can always tell who's preaching, uh, if Rob and I are preaching, because I always like blanks, and Rob doesn't like blanks, so we compromised, and I filled in your blanks for you, okay, so that's a good compromise. But, but you know, when I, when I, when I pray for our church, and what I pray that this helps you do, and, and me do, that this gives us uh, some confidence to engage people. I would say we are, live, are living in a world that we need to learn how to appropriately engage people with truth. And, and, and one of the things I want you to know is that you can be confident in the Word of God. And, and we've got to learn to live by that faith, to stand on the Word. And so, so as we wrestle through some of these details, it's going to be some mental sweat, but it's, it's my prayer that we're confident to engage, that, that we're ready to explain. We've got to be ready to explain. And it's my prayer that, like what we've asked our church, if you uh, are following us on social media at 936, one of the things we're asking all of you to do is set, a, set an alarm for 936 to, to remind you, 936 in the morning, to, to pray and to look for open doors every day. And at 936, I did that today. Lord, help me to uh, understand the platform you've given me today which was to preach a funeral service, help with a funeral service day. That was part of my platform today, to share the gospel. And we did that well today. But, but we all need to be ready to explain. And this is something I pray that, that these tools, because what we're going to give you are tools to engage with and to understand. Uh, then, then we're determined to speak up, and this is what I pray we do. So... You know, when I, when I think about the things that God has allowed me to be a part of in ministry, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for so many things. I'm so grateful for the, the things that I've gotten to um, experience with the Lord. And, and, um, uh, but, but, you know, when I think about just 
what God has allowed me to see and allowed me to experience. One of the things that I'm most thankful for are the people that God has allowed me to know. And, and you know, when I look at one of the greatest stories from our church, um, it's one of the most meaningful um, experiences I've had at First Owasso. And it's been a relationship with Rob Lewis. Because uh, um, I can remember first coming here, and Rob didn't like me very much. Um, but, but looking at, at this young man who had incredible passion and a mind that is um, gifted, a gifted mind. And I just remember thinking, Lord, what, what, what do we do with him? What are you, what are you gonna do with him? What are you gonna do with him? Yeah, what are you gonna do with this guy? And then, and then to watch the Lord begin to move him and, 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 and shape him and, and, and sharpen him and, and use him. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that, I, that has been the most fun experiences is this four weeks. I look forward to it every year. And we sit down and go, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What kind of sweat are we going to engage in? I mean, we, we want to engage this time in such a way that we got to go take a shower afterwards. That's the kind of sweat we're going to work on, okay? And um, we're going to dig into hermeneutics and methods of studying the scriptures. So everybody push your sleeves up a little bit. Come on, I'm serious. Push them up. Just a little bit. And uh, Rob, let's get after it. Come on. Thank you for getting us kicked off, Chris. Um, this is one of the most important topics that we will ever be able to talk about because um, everything else relating to Christian faith and practice, everything comes down to our ability to rightly understand the Word of God. If you, have, if you have an inaccurate view of the Word, it means you have bad theology. It not only means you have bad theology like in a theoretical sense, but it actually means that you don't have a correct view of God. Because God has chosen to reveal His nature, His character, uh, and the plan of redemption in His Word, which is history. It's real history, but there's more than history, and that's actually what we're going to kind of look at over the next four weeks. And as we get started tonight, I know it's a little bit small, and people have already been giving me a hard time that I wrote too small, and that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll read it out loud as well, so hopefully you're not both seeing and hearing impaired. If so, um, we'll, have to, we'll have to figure something else out. I, I wrote a basic timeline here, and this is an important thing I don't expect you guys to memorize all of these dates, uh, but it is really interesting. I would say next to hermeneutics, next to understanding the Word of God, probably the second most important thing you should study, in my opinion, is church history. If you understand where we came from, it really helps you understand where we are, and it, and it helps you understand the heresies that have come up, and there's all sorts of beautiful things that you can learn from church history. And what we see through church history is God's preservation of his word. 
And I want to walk you through this timeline a little bit and kind of help us contextualize some of what we're going to work through. So um, whenever I used to teach Sunday school class here uh, at the Owasso campus, I taught Sunday school for eight years, and I loved it. And I always told the class, there's two dates that I want you to memorize. One of them is 1445 B.C., and the other is 722 B.C., and 1445 B.C., roughly, is when the Exodus occurred, all right? So when you think of when the Old Testament uh, books, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible were written, have this in your mind. That's kind of the time stamp. During the time of the Exodus is, is roughly where we start to see uh, the first five books of the Bible being uh, written down. Now, it relates information that happened way earlier, right? Abram, all that's, that stuff that happened way earlier, but actually getting written down, it was written by Moses, and Moses lived during that time. The Exodus was around 1445 BC, all right? That's an important date. And then if you move forward a little bit, there's a whole lot that happens, but roughly uh, in 250 BC, you get what we call the Septuagint, which is the LXX, which stands for the 70. And what that was, was a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right? There's a lot that goes into that, but at least around 250, we can say the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were written in Greek. Why? Because during this time, Greek was the common language. And so they were already seeing that shift, okay? And so during that time, we see the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, all right, is written in Hebrew, gets written in Greek. Now, it's interesting because then here, 33 AD, roughly the year that Christ died, right? So we, we have some, it is the year that, that Christ died, but we've got some weird things with our calendar because Christ was probably born around 3 or 4 BC, and it's, so we got some weird things, but we're going to hold fast that 33 AD is a good mark for us to say the death of Christ. Uh, and then what happens a little further is you have 100 AD, we can all agree that the New Testament was closed by 100 AD. Revelation was written in the 90s, um, but we will say for just a sake of argument that by 100 AD, the New Testament is closed, all right? The New Testament was written in Greek. So by 100 AD, you've got a significant portion, if not all, of the Old Testament written in Greek, and you have the New Testament written in Greek, all right? So here we are. Then what happens is around 400... Uh, A.D., you get the Latin uh, Vulgate, all right? And St. Jerome was the one who was responsible for going back and learning the original languages and translating it into Latin, all right? So we got the Latin Vulgate. So I'm going to write an L here. That meant that the Bible stayed in Latin for about a thousand years, all right? Here at 1390, that's when we get John Wycliffe, and he starts to translate the Bible into Middle English. That was a problem because everyone said, do not take it out of Latin. So we have, we have trouble there, okay? And then, a little further along, we run into 1517. Can anyone tell me what happened in 1517? What started there? The Reformation, yes, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses uh, focused on the indulgences and their effectiveness. 
Well, what happened just a prior year before the beginning of the Reformation in 1516, uh, you had the completion of the New Testament, which was Erasmus, who was another scholar who lived during the time of Martin Luther, and he was friends with Martin Luther. He translated uh, the New Testament back into Greek. So this is an interesting, interesting thing, because all these scholars were like, hey, We've got all of this in Latin, but we don't really have a good copy of the New Testament that's in Greek. So he went and started to do some work. Um, so we have here, I'm just going to put uh, Erasmus and Luther. And I know my scribbling's hard to follow. Uh, you're, you're paying a very low fee tonight, though. So in Greek, we were in Greek. Okay, great. But what was really interesting was that there was still a problem with this because this was only for the scholars to use. Everybody else didn't even have access to the Bible, and whatever access there was, if you could get around one, it was going to be written in Latin anyways. And no one read Latin. No one could speak Latin except for the scholars at that time. So you've got the common people, which Vulgate in Latin means common, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it got put in Latin because that was, that was happening then, right? That was, the, that was the common language. Then it got stuck in Latin for so long and that no one was speaking Latin anymore. And so the common people couldn't read the word of God. Well, the Reformation not only took it from Greek, um, but also we saw Luther start to put it uh, into German. So I'm going to write a small g here. So in 1390, we have a little bump there to try to get it in English. But then after the Reformation, um, we start seeing this more of a push to get it in English and other languages. 1560 is when the Geneva... Bible was produced, and it was in English, and that was the Bible of the Puritans as well as the, pure, uh, the pilgrims. So when the pilgrims came over to the United States, the Bible that they had was the Geneva Bible, which was that old English, right? Then 1611, everyone should know what happened in 1611. This is when Paul came back and rewrote the Bible. You know, you don't, you don't remember that? Oh, okay. 1611, this was also an English translation, and that was the King James Version, right? All right, so we have a little history here, but what I want you to see is that you live in a time where you don't have to even worry about this stuff. The Bible is in your own language, yet I would argue we live in a very uh, biblically illiterate time, which is sketchy. It's a problem. If you actually start to dig into the Word of God, what actually starts to happen is that you start to get your mind changed, your heart changed. As we've said it many times before, you don't come to the Word to read the Word as much as you come to the Word to have the Word read you. This is the written Word of God, that God has revealed Himself to us, which means that there's things about God that we would not know and could not know unless He told them to us. How he's told them to us is through his written word, but also, here's the written word, but there's also something called the living word, which is Jesus Christ. And most of the New Testament, I would argue the whole Bible is focused on Christ, but most of the New Testament includes the Gospels, right? The focus of the New Testament, if you will, is the Gospel. So even Paul, when he's writing, what's he writing about? Christ, he's writing about the Gospel. Well, the Gospels are all about the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's real history, and if we can't understand this book, 
if we have ideas of what this book means, but we don't really accurately interpret it, then we have all sorts of problems. And so what we're going to try to do in this four weeks, which is tough to do this in, is try to give you all some tools to be on your way to continue your ability to rightly divide the word, to rightly understand it. Does that mean at the end of this that all of us are going to agree theologically? No. There's going to be plenty that we can debate. But what we ought to do is when we walk away from this, we should say, I understand there's a process, and that process calls me to submit myself to what this says. That should be the absolute goal of what we do here. So as we get started tonight, I want to give you kind of a, a weekly breakout, all right? So week one will be the introduction, and we're going to focus tonight on literary genre. Next week, we'll take a look at the general context. Most people, when they say, oh, you got to read the Bible, put it in context. Well, there's more than, than just context, and we're going to break that down. So there's a general context, but there's also immediate context. And we will make the distinctions between those two and give you some tools to do that well. And then week four, we're going to take a look at interpretation and application. And I would argue most people, when they read the word, they start to read immediately for application. How do I apply this? I'm going to put this out there, and I'm going to repeat it many times. Do not look for application. Do not even look for what it means. I know that may feel weird. You're like, wait, what? That's, well, then what do you do with the Bible? You look at it and try to understand what it says. Because you can't apply what it means if you don't know what it says. And you may say, Rob, that we, just, we can read well. We all went to school. But I'm going to question the assumption that we can read it well. And that's what we want to do, is we want to be very good uh, expert observers to say, what does it say? So hold off on application, hold off on interpretation, until you've got a good grasp of what in the world it actually says. All right, so that's what we're going to do. So learning objectives. Understand and apply the general principles or rules of hermeneutics. We're going to talk about what that word is in a second. The role of literary genre. We're also going to take a look at the difference between authorial intent and reader response. And then we're going to also work uh, to make sure everyone understands observation versus presuppositions. And we're going to work a little bit through that tonight. And then literary context, and there's a lot that goes into that, right? Uh, and so there's also historical, cultural considerations that are also going to be very important in our exercise of reading the Word of God. And then obviously, theological principles. We come to the Bible for our theology. But when we're in there, we're going to be looking for things called theological principles, and we'll be working through that, right? And then last, uh, meditate interpret and apply. So we should be able to, at the end of this, have a brief, at least, introduction to all of these things, but leading to this idea of correct interpretation and correct application that includes meditation, but having done that by actually going through and saying, I become an expert observer, and I just focus on what does it say. All right? So, Learning objectives, we just said we'll do some practice, though. We're going to do some book charting. You probably have never done that before, so that'll be a fun exercise. When I taught this class in um, a form of this class last fall at uh, Calvary, um, I think I started a, a near mutiny uh, as, as we were uh, doing the book study in, in, in First John. But what was really cool is at the end of it, it was such a powerful thing, um, such a powerful thing. When you get people, a group of people, searching the scriptures to understand it. It is amazing what will happen to our hearts, especially if you start to mess with First John. But hopefully you guys don't quit that week. But, 
All right, Chris, I guess I'm done. <laughs> Book charting, we will do that. Scripture diagramming, we will do some of that. We'll do some study tool stuff. Why we want you at tables is we're actually going to have some resources. And part of our exercises will be we'll give you resources, and you guys will work together. You'll work around your tables to come up with some ideas and how do you wrestle with these resources in light of what the text says, what in light of these commentaries and other resources. So that will be a fun exercise that we'll do um, probably starting next week. And then we'll also produce some interpretations. We want to hear from you you. We want to hear some of your interpretations. Now, some of you may say, I don't, want, I don't want to share my interpretations, and that's okay, but maybe that means even you share your interpretation with your table, because what we want to do is we want to allow for feedback and peer-to-peer -peer learning, all right? This shouldn't just be, you stand here and listen to me and Chris. We are a body of Christ, and there's so much knowledge and wisdom in this, in this room that it'll be really, really productive for us to be able to share that with one another, all right? The five steps right here, you've got it on your paper. I'm not gonna explain them because what we're gonna do is we're actually going to work through them. So you can see on your paper what those five steps are. We're taking those five steps and we're condensing them down to four weeks. So four and five are all together, all right? But let me talk about what is hermeneutics. Many of you, uh, have you ever heard the word hermeneutics before? Some of you have, all right? It's kind of a weird word. We don't really throw it around very often. Um, but uh, I want you to have at least a brief understanding of what it is. It is a methodology that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible. The objective of doing hermeneutics is to arrive at an accurate meaning and explanation of the text. It's not only a process, but a principle-based framework for reading and understanding the text as if there is objective meaning to be found. So hermeneutics is a discipline, but it's not just a discipline. It gives us a framework so that we might come to an accurate interpretation of the text. What does the text say and what does the text mean? Because what we believe is that there is objective meaning to be found. And so what we have to do is we have to be good, uh, at, 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 we have to get good at coming uh, to that conclusion, all right? So let's, let's work through an FAQ real quick. So here's an interesting one. Can't you just rely on the Holy Spirit to tell you what the text means? Have you ever heard that before? Has anyone ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard anyone say that before. All right. Anyone want to take a stab at why that's a problem? Why can't you just do that? Well, some people have been Christians and some have been Christians for 50 years. It just takes time. Sure. Yeah, it sure does. He says some, some people are baby Christians, just became Christians, and it just takes time, right? Uh, anyone else have a, have a reason? Yeah, Mr. Paul. Ooh, yes. He says our fallen nature is that we would read these things selfishly uh, and then maybe blame it on the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this, can't you just rely on the Holy Spirit to tell you what the text means? That usually comes out of a spirit of, I don't want to do the work. I would just rather read it and then tell you what my feelings are about it and then come up with this idea that the Holy Spirit told me that. And, and actually, that was kind of part of the, the fear in the, in the, during the Reformation and pre-Reformation that they didn't want everyone having their own scripture. They didn't want it in their own language. Why? Because there would be so many splits. Then there would be denominational fracturing. Uh, quick question. Did that happen? Yes. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there is quite a bit to this. 
And what we have to recognize is that there are essentials, and there's secondary issues, and there's tertiary issues. And all of those things go into why there's denominational splits. All right? Now, in the Catholic Church, in the early church, uh, it wasn't like it was a perfect world either. They had plenty of theologians debating different topics. And what do you think the Reformation was born out of? The 95 Thesis was posted, what? To debate doctrine, to debate a theological principle. All right? So what we have to look at is first off is say, no, let's not be lazy. We can't just live in this subjective world that um, all of us are, uh, you know, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And since that's true, uh, all of us are super gifted at reading the Word and knowing what it says because we just rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal it. Now, there is part of that that's true. The Holy Spirit does illuminate the Word for us. But that doesn't mean that there isn't work involved in it. It doesn't mean that there isn't logical uh, you know, uh, rules, right? If we, if we read one text and we read another text and we contradict ourselves, well, we, have to, we have to say we've done something wrong. All right, so there is a method to this. We can't just rely on this big subjective world of the Holy Spirit telling us. Here's another one. The test can mean different things to different people. What do you think about that one? Have you ever heard that before? All right, what do we do with it? So, first off, let's break it down. Um, does the text, in a very general sense, have the ability to speak different things to different people in different times in their life? Yes. Okay. So, let's just throw that out there. You may read a passage once, and you're like, whoa, okay. And then next year, let's just say you hit that same passage again, you go, oh, didn't see that. Okay, so there can be many levels and layers. But here's the heart of this. This is saying the text is subjective. There is no objective meaning to be found, and it's totally open to everyone to come up with their own conclusion as to what this means. That ought to be fully rejected. So what we have to say is that the text has something its meaning to communicate. So then it's our job to find out what that message is. And it's not open to this big subjective rendering. But have you ever been a part of a, a Bible study where everyone gets together and they read a passage and then everyone goes around and says, well, what does this mean to you? And I say, I don't know, this is what it means to me. I don't know, this is what it means to me. Have you ever been a part of that? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, kind of reminds me of like uh, Spurgeon said, there was a young man who was excited and came to him and told him about this Bible study where no one knew anything and they had such a great time and learned so much right? It's like all these people have no idea what the text says, no idea what in the world's going on, but they learn so much from one another. That's a bad way to come to the word, right? Uh, but I'll admit, there's been times in my life that that's, that's how I've led Bible studies. I'm like, I have no idea what this means, so we're going to read it, and we'll all just kind of pontificate about it and talk about it. We all leave, and we're not sure what the real conclusion is here, but we had a great time, and we ate something together, right? Let's, let's, move, let's move one step past that, all right? So first off, the text can mean different things to us in different ways at different times in one sense, but the, the sense in which it means that it's totally open to whatever personal interpretation you would have, that is false, all right? So we do not want to fall into that trap. So let's warm up. Uh, here's a passage for you. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. All right, now we're having fun. Okay, uh, first off, Old Testament or New Testament? Okay, good job, Old Testament. Anyone uh, have any idea who wrote that? Who the author's name is? It's Jeremiah. 
Okay, so it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 16. So now we know who. Anyone, real quick, so we're, we're talking about genre tonight. We're going to break this down a little bit more here in just a second. But can anyone tell me what genre Jeremiah belongs to? It's a prophet. He's a prophet, right? He was the weeping prophet, right? He had a hard life, all right? So we know it's the genre is prophecy. We know the covenant. It's Old Covenant, Old Testament, all right? But still, just imagine, though, uh, if you had to take this and you had to uh, preach it uh, or teach a class on it, where would you start, so see how it gets pretty tough to rush to application? Where's the application in this thing? That's not, that's not an uplifting, probably in the Sunday school quarterly, Brad, forgive me, they probably would skip over this passage, all right? There's no way someone's going to stand up in front of the room and say, all right, this morning we're going to, um, we're not going to pray for people, Mm-mm. not going to do that. Because uh, God says he's not going to listen to us if we do. So, where do you guys want to go eat lunch? Right? Not a productive morning. Right? But, but this is something we need to wrestle with. So, uh, here's another question I want to ask you. Do you take the Bible literally? Okay. I'm going to do a quick survey. For those of you who believe that we read the Bible and take it literally, raise your hand. Okay. You're... Yeah, everyone's like, clauses, clauses, right? Okay. Okay, your vote has been counted. Okay, next group. How many of you believe that we shouldn't take it literally all the time? Oh, there's a qualifier. Okay. So, we need to unpack that. And we will this morning. I mean, excuse me, this evening, a little bit. But this text right here, let me invite you to turn in your word to it real quick. And we're going we're gonna to do a little work. Jeremiah 7. There's a list of questions that we really need to understand here, all right? Because this next question I'm going to throw up on the screen is related. Are there different rules for interpreting different texts? So as you're turning there, um, let me ask you that question. Are there different rules for interpreting different texts? I'm going to tell you, yes, there are. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But we just turned to Jeremiah 7. Uh, the verse is 16, okay, if you see that down in your, in your passage, uh, your, your copy of God's word says, as for you, do not pray for this people, lift up a cry of prayer for them. Um, what's our first step in interpreting this passage? Do what? Yes, context. We all know context, all right? So we actually have already started that contextual journey. Um, the first thing that we did was we wanted to know, was it Old Testament or New Testament? That's part of context. Then we drilled down the next one. We said, um, do we know what book it, li it lives in? What, what book does it belong to? Jeremiah. Okay, what, what genre is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is prophetic, all right? It's a prophecy. But here's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, because many of us, when we hear prophecy, um, I'm going to erase some of this to make a little spot that we can, read, we can write. So prophecy, when we talk about prophecy, what generally comes to mind? The future. Okay, that's interesting. And that is true, but that's only part of it. And that would, would be, we were, we're talking about foretelling. 
We're talking about something that is going to come uh, to pass in the future. But then there's also forth telling. And this is just speaking truth. And if you actually look, most of the prophecy in the Bible has little to do with what's going to happen in the future. There is some, absolutely. But most of it is saying, this is what you've already done, and it's bad. That's a lot of what the, the prophets would say. And so here, this is a prophecy, and it's a forth telling. It's, it's telling the truth here. He's saying, as for you, do not pray for these people. We left up a cry of prayer for them. But if we backed up, we've got to say, well, who, who is this? He says, as for you, well, who's you? And do not pray for this people. Who's these people? We have no idea who we're talking about yet, right? So we would have to back up. And you might expect, hmm, this is probably somebody that's not on the Lord's side. But if you actually look uh, back up a little bit, it's talking about uh, Israelites. It's talking about God's people in uh, and, and, and the family of Ephraim in Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 6, turn to chapter 6. What does your heading say? Impeding disaster for Jerusalem. That's the heading that my version says, and I'm, I'm sure that you have something similar. And so when we start to look at this, we already have to answer the question, do I take this literally? Well, this is one that um, I would take literally. God is saying, don't do this. And it's a weird one that he says, don't do. He's basically saying, don't even ask me about it. Because my mind is made up. These people are so messed up. They've done so much. And I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to hear an intercessory prayer. Do not lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Then 17, do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? All right? So it's really interesting when we start to unpack that. But what I want us to think of is that there are different rules for interpreting different texts. All right? So what we're going to actually look at, step one, with the rest of the time that we have this evening, is to look at literary genre. Because literary genre is super important. All right? So here's some of the common biblical genres. Historical narrative, poetry, song, apocalyptic, prophecy, an epistle, or what we would say is or letters, all right? So each of these are going to require different rules. Um, and if, if you uh, don't believe me, we'll, we'll do a couple of exercises really quick. And what I would like to do is turn to one of my favorite devotional books, The Song of Solomon. Yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> I want to read to you real quick, and I want you to tell me, do you take this literally or not, all right? It says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats, leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. <laughs> How do you, do you take that literally? As it goes on, it says, your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. They are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without numbers. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure. He goes on, right? And if you read throughout, he talks about how your neck is like a stacked concrete wall, basically. It talks about her thighs being stone and all these. You're like, it just doesn't translate today, right? You know, and my wife doesn't really like me to say how well her ears look like corn. You know, like it's just not a, not a flattering thing. doesn't really get you any points. But when you read this, you, you take this figuratively. 
Why? Because this is, is not historical narrative. All right? He's saying, your teeth are like a flock of ewes. And have you ever said this? Someone say, your teeth look so white, they're like freshly washed lambs. <laughs> and they all bear twins. What does that mean? Well, in that context, you want your cattle and other, other things to have more than one if they can, right? So that was a good thing. But not only that, I love this part. It says, not one among them has lost its young. It's almost like you're like, you're not missing a single tooth, babe. You're looking great. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't take this literally, all right? Another example would be if we talked about apocalyptic literature, uh, you know, and it talks about the stars that are going to fall down and all these, but there's things going to happen after the stars hit the earth. It's like, well, how many stars does it take to wipe out the earth? Uh, one, right? So, so there's a lot of hyperbole that's used. There's a lot of, a lot of language that, that we don't take literally. There's metaphors. There's similes. There's, we understand this. We recognize this quickly when we read it anywhere else. And we actually recognize it pretty quickly when we read the Word of God as well. So what I want to challenge is, if you have any assumption that you take all of the Bible literally, let me softly and gently push you to not actually say that anymore. Say, take what's literal, literal, and take what's figurative, figuratively. But that does not mean that there isn't an objective meaning to be found. There's a difference between that. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that unless it's historical narrative, do whatever you want to with it. That's not true. But when we say, is the Bible to be taken literally all the time, first off, you say, no, because I've got to recognize the rules of genre. And whenever I look at historical narrative, I'm going to read historical narrative a certain way. When I read poetry, I'm going to read poetry a certain way, a song a certain way, apocalyptic literature, prophecy, epistle, right? Wouldn't you agree that there's a difference between an epistle, uh, like one of Paul's letters, uh, and uh, prophecy? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that there's a difference there? And you know it. As soon as you start to read it, you know it. That's because genre um, has to be taken into account, all right? So you know it when you see it. Let's do a couple examples. Example one, the early bird gets the worm, right? What is this? It's a, it's a, it's a popular saying, right? Now, does it literally mean that whoever shows up earliest gets a, is guaranteed a worm? <laughs> That's not what it's meant to say. Um, I, I, I've been in a kick lately when I... Um, probably more than I should, but calling my children blockheaded literalists. Because everything they, I say, they take absolutely literally. And then we have to debate about why I didn't literally mean what I said, right? But that's probably a phase, and they'll grow out of it. I don't know. And I'm sure I did that to my parents as well. But there's a sense in which you read this, and if anyone says, oh, yeah, okay. So the early bird gets the worm. That means every time a bird shows up early somewhere, it's going to get a worm. You would be like, no, you're missing it. That isn't what it's it's not, that's not what it's meant to communicate, right? Example two, before you leave the house, please take the trash out to the curb. All right. Uh, would you take that literally? Yes. If you found that note on the kitchen counter and your wife wrote it, you should do it, right? That's meant to be taken literally, and you recognize it right away. How about this one? Abraham Lincoln died on April 15th in the year of 1865 AD from a gunshot wound. Do you take that literally? Yes, because that's historical narrative. That something actually happened in the past, and this is telling you about it. 
all right? So genre, we see it all the time. We quickly recognize it. It's no different in the Word of God as well, all right? So what we have to do is we've got to look at genre in the Bible uh, to, to start to understand kind of what's really there. So there are two main genres in the Bible, narrative and poetry, all right? And so when we start to look at this, uh, it's important to note that narrative is the largest genre that can be divided into subgenres, such as historical narrative, prophecy, or perhaps a report. Isn't that interesting that prophecy kind of lives as a subgenre of narrative? Because a lot of times it's talking about here's what you did, right? It's God speaking through a prophet about the sins of the people. So that's that difference between foretelling and forthtelling. So if you don't remember anything from tonight, remember that even in prophecy, it's not all about the future, all right? So there's a part of when you come to prophecy and you start to look at it and you say, hmm, what is this? Because actually part of it could be narrative, all right? So it says, or perhaps a report, a speech, instruction, and even a fictional story. Uh, this is Riken, uh Leland, all right? And then here's another look at poetry. On the other hand, while not technically a genre per se, is a literary style and a literary form that is the second most common form in the Bible, and that's William Klein and Craig Blomberg. So the idea is that what we're going to find when we open up the scriptures is that we're going to see a lot of narrative, and there's subgenres to uh, narrative, whether that's historical narrative or prophecy. Uh, there's other things that we can see in there, but then there's also poetry. Poetry takes up a lot of what we look at in the Word. So when we come to poetry, um, what should we be expecting to find? A lot of what? And I don't have like one word. You tell me, what should I find when, I, when, I, when I'm in poetry? Yes, figurative language. What else? Imagery, great, yes. What else? Symbolism, perfect, yep. Mm-hmm. Hyperbole, metaphor. There's, there's all of that that's going to live uh, in, in that genre, all right? So uh, whenever we start to uh, get into this, I want you to understand a couple of things, and this is super, super important. This question is one of the most significant questions for our time. Who controls meaning, all right? So imagine this. You find a notebook filled with stories that was written by your grandparents. The first few pages are missing, but from what you can tell, it seems to be short stories sketching out some of the adventures and experiences that mark the first year of their marriage. All right? So you find this, uh, and it's missing a few pages. So here's, here's, here's a, a question. Do you read it as if they were trying to communicate something objective as real history? Or do you read it as something you have the freedom to interpret as you see fit in order to better fit your understanding of what people typically do in their first year of marriage? Which one? Both. Ooh, okay. So naturally, if I understood this to be, uh, these are short stories sketching out some of the adventures and experiences that mark, mark the first year of, of my grandparents' marriage, I'm going to understand this as something that really happened, right? If, I, if my kids find my journals someday and they read it, I would expect them to read it as, this is really what dad did. I start a lot of my entries, sitting on an airplane, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to expect them to take it, dad was actually sitting on an airplane when he wrote this. So what we have to ask is, who controls meaning? Because this is a big part of what the struggle that we're facing uh, today circles around, right? So the author is not irrelevant and passive. Rather, the author is the one who created the message, for the reader to decode and understand using the common rules of language and grammar. All right? Do you get that? 
So what we're actually saying is that the author, the author gets to say. So when I say author, what am I talking about? When we're talking about this, the, the Word of God specifically, who is the author of Scripture? Okay, that's a good, safe one. Jesus. <laughs> you guys have been to a Baptist Sunday school, I can tell. So the author of Scripture is God. Um, next level, is there, are there any other authors of Scripture? Yeah, right? Because the people who actually wrote them, the people who are involved, the Apostle Paul, Moses, John, I mean, go, on, go down the list, they are rightly considered authors. So it's not as if the Holy Spirit came in and inspired these authors in a way that he, he took over and, and John's like sleepwalking writing, you know, and it's like not really John. That's not what we're to think because it's really John writing, right? Luke, uh, Paul, whoever it is, they literally are the authors. And there is a mystery here. There is no perfect explanation of how that works. There's a mystery that God would inspire his word through human authors. So authorship is twofold. First, it is God revealing things about himself that no human would know unless he revealed it to them. Yet his chosen method is to inspire people to write down the message they receive. So the authorship of the, of the scripture is two levels. So we first off, we have, to, we have to ask, what did God mean when he gave this word? Because every word of the word is, is, is meaningful. It's there for a reason. Now, I'm not saying that you have to freak out and get the perfect translation. I personally prefer ESV. Many of you may like NIV or, or, or the King James Version or some of the version, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. When we read them, they're going to disagree a little bit exactly what English word they transliterated, right? That's not the point. But the point is, is that every bit of what's communicated in Scripture has a purpose. God intended to communicate something. And it's our job as the readers to decode the message, right? To understand the message. How? Understand it using the common rules of language and grammar. I can't tell you how important knowing what a comma does is to your understanding of Scripture. For real. But these are the things that we've got to get good at. And we're going to press a little bit on this, all right? So let's keep going with this idea. The first question in this line is, what do we bring to the text? All right, so imagine this scenario. You can't find your keys. You think you left them in your home office because that's where you always put them when you come home. But really, you left them in the laundry room. You set them on the dryer when you quickly check the clothes to see uh, if, uh, when you came in the house and you don't remember setting your keys anywhere. So here's a question. Where do you spend the most time looking? Where you think they are, Right? So that's the problem. Um, there's assumptions here, and, and we have assumptions and presuppositions that we bring to the text. So when you look for your keys in a living room, how hard do you look there? Not very hard, right? Because you're like, I know they're not in here, so I'm going to go look anyways, but I know they're not in here. One of the things that I tell myself when I'm looking for things is, Here's, here's, here's just the facts, Rob. You don't know where this thing is. If you did know where it is and you're still looking for it, you're crazy. 
So you don't know where it is. So don't tell yourself you know it's not there because that means you know where it is. So take that for what it's worth. But this is what we should understand when we're reading scripture is that we're going to bring assumptions and presuppositions to the text. What do I mean by that? I mean that every one of us, when we come to the text, we have, we have something that we believe about the text before we interact with the text. We have ideas and beliefs that have already been formed. For some of us, it's been years of formation. All right, so um, how many of you are familiar with some of the big uh, theological controversies? Like, we'll throw out one, and we're not going to debate it tonight, but Calvinism versus Arminianism, all right? Uh, quick vote. Who's a... No, just kidding. <laughs> but if you fall on either side of that, when you come to the text, what are you going to look for? Support for your view. And then you get this weird tension when you start to read the scripture and it disagrees with you, but you're like, oh, it must be wrong. There's got to be another passage that's better. Let's not bring that one up, right? That's what we do. And does, I don't care who you are. I do it. Chris does it. You do it. What we have to realize is we're doing it. So what we have to recognize is that there's not a single soul who comes to the text with pure motives in a clean blank slate and says, Lord, I have no presuppositions, no, no preconceived thoughts, no assumptions. I come open, ready to receive the pure, unadulterated truth from your mouth. Teach me. No, what we do is we come to the text and we say, I've got a pretty good idea of what this says. I just need a little application. Where is it at? That's what we do. Don't do that. That's bad, Okay. So what I have to, I have to um, what we all have to recognize, I have to do it as well, is that we bring things to the text. And th that comes in the form of starting to wonder uh, who in the world controls uh, the meaning. And what we've got to do is, first off, is become an expert observer. All right? So, and I, my spell check is failing me tonight. Become man, expert observer. <laughs> Slow down. That's the first thing. Don't rush to application. What we have to do is, first off, recognize that we are going to be reading this from our own sinful, preconceived uh, position. So there is something called the authorial intent, and this is interesting, uh, because when we, when we start to look at this, be between the author and the reader, where does the authority lie? The authority lies with the author. And actually, author and authority, they're, they're together there, right? The word roots there, authority and author, they, they go together. So the author has the authority to determine meaning. In our time, what we actually are more leaning towards is what's called the reader response. And that is, me, as an individual reader coming to the text... What is my response? How does the text make me feel? What do I think the text means, or how should I apply it? And it's independent of what the author actually meant. And that's that whole idea of the text can mean many different things to many different people. That is in line with reader response versus authorial intent. Reader response says, 
You get to tell me what the text means. You get to tell me what the text means. You, and, and we don't have to agree because it's all subjective and it's all on the reader. All right? It's as if, it's that, that uh, you know, we saw it all on social media. Uh, is the dress blue or is it gold? That's that reader response subjectivity kind of thing. Uh, me and my wife were talking the other day, and she wants to get it into a uh, you know, program so we can do the old color dropper thing, and we'll just settle the debate once for all because we'll get the RGB code, you know, tell you, tell you what it actually is, and then we'll solve the world's problems that way. But that is what we have to recognize is that when we're looking at this, every single one of us has to, has to fight the temptation to say, what does this text mean to me? Because you are irrelevant largely in this. There is an application that it can mean something to you, but you only get there after you found what the author meant to communicate first. The author has a meaning. Your job as a reader is to interpret that. How do we do that? We have to slow down. One of the things that we do is that we read too fast. And I don't mean like that we're just all speed readers and we have the ability to read quickly. I'm saying when we come to the text, we read too fast. We read too quickly. We scan it real quick. If you want to get better at teaching, preaching, uh, expositing the word of God, one of the very first habits you'll have to break is reading too quickly. Literally pay attention to every comma, every period. I mean, every bit of it you start to look at it and you say, I, I don't know what this means. You come to the text and literally you tell yourself, I don't know what this means. I want to understand what is there. And you can start to see clauses start to come up, if-then statements. All of that stuff is gold. So we have to slow down, but then we have to also fight the temptation to rush to application. Why do you think that we want to get to application so quickly? Why, why do you think that's a common temptation for us? What's it done for me lately? Okay. He said, what's it done for me lately? All right. Anything else? Let's talk about, you know, maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Why do you hunt so much for application? Anybody? Oh, so you can say you're done. Check off the box. All right. Very good. If any one of us has stood up in front of an audience in, in, in our Sunday school class and we got our whiteboard, um, we like to be able to say, here's what the text tells us to do right? Here's the takeaway. Here's how this should change your heart, your mind, your behavior. Those are good things. That is a, that is a right goal. Um, many of us learn in, in class in, in, uh, in Bible school or seminary uh, that you want to affect people by, uh, you should be thinking about what should you want them to know, feel, and do, right? So I'm going to teach you something. I want to make you feel something, but then you should put it in practice. There should be a verb there. What should you leave doing, right? So that's, that's the application kinds of things that we're hunting for. But if we are too quick to jump to application, we actually miss a whole lot of what the actual text says. And I actually think that a lot of our application is pretty bad. It, it starts to feel like this just moralism, this self, uh, self-reforming kinds of things because it starts to emphasize our behavior more than what is actually at the heart of the gospel, which is understanding what in the world it means to become a new creation in Christ and how that actually works and understanding what the gospel actually is. And so when we start to think of application, application, we start to focus on verbs. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? 
and less of who are you becoming, who are you becoming, who are you becoming, because the word is messing you up inside, questioning your assumptions, questioning your assertions, questioning your theology. And then you start to become more and more like Christ. Why? Because you have more and more of the truth in you. Your worldview is being challenged. Your worldview is being shaped. And that's the beauty of living the Christian life is that we come to the text day after day, year after year, and actually see that we are growing in godliness, not just because of what we do, but because of of the holiness that is coming because of the Holy Spirit working to transform our hearts and our minds. Does that make sense? Because if we attack behavior, we're attacking the wrong thing right away. Because, as C.S. Lewis says, is that a godly person will do godly things. So our focus isn't, Lord, what should I do, but who should I become? And we do that by rightly dividing the word of, of, of God. So don't rush even to figure out what the text means. So slow down. Don't look for application too fast. And actually, this seems a little bit weird, but don't rush to even figure out what the text means. I know you're probably thinking, well, that seems like the point. But if you're hunting, looking for the meaning of the text without looking for what the text actually says, you're missing it again. Do you get how this can be kind of difficult to actually slow down enough? And you may be right now thinking, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. But I'm going to show you. We're going to, we're going to show you because when you start to get into sentence, sentence diagramming, when you get into book charting, when you start to look at this stuff, you start seeing relationships, and all you're caring about is what does it say. You're not thinking about meaning. You're not thinking about application. It really starts to illuminate, and the world starts to open up for you. All right? So we're almost finished here. Uh, hang with me. Let me recap. Step one, identify the literary genre. Recognize the different rules of interpretation each genre requires. Historical narrative versus poetry versus epistle, etc. All right, authorial intent versus reader response. Remember, the author creates meaning. It's our job to find that meaning. And then beware of what we bring to the text, our assumptions and our presuppositions. What do you presuppose? What do you assume the text means? All right, and then become an expert observer. Slow down, hold off on interpretation, hold off on application, hold off on meaning. Our focus should be, what does the text say before we can understand or even think about beginning to try to apply the text, all right? So let me give you a quick headshot here of what you're, you should have on the back of your page. That's your homework for this week, to go and look at these uh, genres, the common genres that are found in the Bible, so historical narrative, poetry, song, apocalyptic, all of those, and the exercise is to identify specific books of the Bible that belong to each of these genres listed above. So on that line, one, two, three, four, five, you got six lines. Write down books that you, th- that you think belong to historical narrative, okay? You don't have to get them all, but the idea is just to try to, try to write some of them down, all right? And then two, on line two, you're going to write all the books that you think belong to poetry, uh, and then, you know, so on and so forth, like line six. That's going to be a lot of Paul stuff, right? You're already probably thinking, Paul, 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 right, yes, exactly. So you probably don't have enough space, so write small. Um, but that is uh, your homework for the week. So with that said, uh, I'm going to uh, also give you one more look here on the other, other, the bottom of your page, it should say. You should take a look at Proverbs 16.5, and I want to ask you, do you get the feeling that this is meant to uh, 
be open for discussion, or do you think that the author meant what he said? All right, that'll be an easy one. That's a slow pitch to you. Get us warmed up. We'll have some more difficult times uh, in the near future. So I'm going to throw up the five steps, and then I'm going to ask Chris to come up and, and close us. You know, uh, we, we want, we're not going to grade your homework, okay? So we're not going to grade you uh, here. But, but I want to push you to, to think through this. And, you know, there, there's several reasons this is important. Um, we're, we're called to walk with God. You know, so often, like um, someone said earlier, that we want to just check off a box, you know, I'm a dad, and Robin and I have been tearful in our world because we're, our kids are leaving our house. And I know many people say, oh, you're going to love it <laughs> when they leave, uh, but, but we're, we're sad. And, and, and you know, um, if you, over the Christmas uh, break, Eric, Eric and I went hunting, and we were sitting in the woods for a day. And I just liked being with him. I just liked being with him. I didn't like preach at him as we're in the woods. I didn't, we weren't talking about some life lesson about be a man. We're eating beef jerky and sitting in the woods. I loved it. I loved it. Because it was time. And I've learned as a father that as they leave our house, that, that's, that's precious. You know, Robert and I, the other night, we just we played some game called Exploding Kittens. Some sounded, it was kind of a fun game. <laughs> yeah, I don't like cats. Um, no, it was, a, it was just a card game. And we just laughed and just were together. And it's dawned on me, too, as I think about my walk with the Lord, the Lord just wants time with us, time with you as his child. And I've found that, that when I spend time with the Lord, that makes me better, changes my life. And so we, we can't just approach the Bible with, oh, I just got to, I know that knowledge now. No, we know the Lord. It's time with the Lord. That's why learning these things are, are so important. Your walk with the Lord. Second reason it's so important is that um, we need to know the truth. You know, there's a guy in our, our this town who's come to my office three times, and he's brought me his book that he's written on Revelation, and he said to me, first time he came, and he's like, I know what all these things mean, and I know when Jesus is going to come back, and I know this and that, and you need to teach this at your church. Well, I'm looking at him going, no, no, I'm not. 
And, and then he came back with his revision. I'm like, no, no, I'm not doing that. And he's like, hey, tell me what you think. I'll, no, I'm not doing it. I'll be, I'm nice to the guy. I don't yell at him and throw something at him and kick him out of my office. But I'm not giving him as much time as he probably wants because I'm like, hey, dude, I, I got to go now. Um, but, but, you know, there are many people that are deceived by persuasive people that have passion. And we make the mistake with the Bible to follow the pattern of Google reviews. Like we, we determine, oh, well, let's just look and see what our friends think to see if we're going to believe that or not. You know what, the, what, what I believe God wants? It's critical. It's always been critical. But it's even critical in a global world that we are in now. We've got to learn to think. And just because somebody has a degree behind their name um, or they have gone to school a long time, that doesn't give them necessarily authority. I pray that you think and you listen to what someone is teaching you, including me, including Rob, that you, you listen and go, well, let me think about that. Let me let me just let me think and let's 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 figure out if this is true. That's what the Bereans did. They thought they 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 looked at Paul. Hey, you're a persuasive guy. But I'm going to examine the scriptures and see if what you're saying is true. You got to do that every time somebody preaches at our church. Every time I get up and preach, you got to evaluate. Chris, is this true? Is this true? You got to think. And and we're that's why we're pushing you to this. We're pushing you to think. And learn how to think. We don't, we, we don't con, uh, aspire to the historic um, struggle in the, in the church when the minister said, let's not let the people understand the Bible because we want them to think like I want them to think. No, we want you to learn the word. Because what you do is hold me accountable to teach the truth. And what... What we do is recognize the false. We got to be able to recognize it, the false teaching. And and I we've we've got to learn to do that. We got to learn to think. And 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 you know, lastly, so walk with the Lord. That's our walk with the Lord is sweet, and we don't want to miss that. Our we got to learn to think, and we're, we we want to teach you through these just this study as to how to think, um, and to think and. And thirdly, we got to grow up. We got to grow. We got to grow up to be mature believers, believers who 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 aren't um, tossed by the wind. That we're not going to flip out when some show on the History Channel comes out and is like, "Oh no, will this wreck our faith?" No, nothing the History Channel will produce will wreck our faith in the Lord. Nothing that um, a, a prominent preacher, if he gets up and quest like like what has happened in the last year with um, Josh, um, I kissed dating goodbye guy, Brad. What's his name? Uh, Josh Harris. Josh Harris is a was a prominent pastor, 
one of the most um, well-known pastors that shaped youth ministry when I was teaching kids um, and has renounced his faith and has apologized and said, I don't even believe in this anymore. I mean, this is, and, and we're seeing teacher after teacher, public guy after public guy walk away from the text. And you know what? The Bible tells us that that's going to happen. So we should recognize what the Word says. So I want to challenge you. Go do this work. Understand how to read the text. And, um, and thank you for your attention and your time.